Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Fast Talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of kick-ass bicycle data systems like the Quark Collector. Waterproof and wearable, it's the perfect tool for coaches and data-dedicated athletes. Collector uses GPS, ANT+, and cellular technology to let you seamlessly sync your high-definition data, share real-time tracking, and connect with fellow riders. Find out more at quark.com slash collector. This collector thing sounds like it has you written all over it, Trevor. It's oh, like, hell yeah. It's like peak, peak nerditude. I say that in the most loving possible way. This is Trevor geekiness on the fly, real time. <laughs> Um, no, I think, I think the position that you are in, which obviously it's different, you know, the best position to be in, it's different in every single race, which is part of what makes sprinting so difficult to master. But I would say that honestly above everything else, because in, especially in certain, certain races, if you put yourself in the right spot, no matter how fast somebody is, if they're two wheels off you, they, they just won't have time to pass you. And then I would say second to that is how fast you actually are. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of Fast Talk. I am Kaylee Fritz, sitting across the table, as always, from Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we're talking about sprinting. We're going to touch on a whole bunch of different topics here. We have, uh, we have Eric Young, a, a top sprinter on the domestic circuit, in as a guest. Actually, he's on the phone as a guest. Uh, we will be discussing genetics and sprinting whether sprinting itself is is uh is mostly based on the way you were born or if you can train it uh, we're going to take a look at power versus positioning what you need to be able to do in the final you know five minutes or so of an event and how important it is to be in the right place for those last five minutes Let's start with genetics. Uh, I think that is an interesting place with sprinting in particular because purely anecdotally, it does seem like an athlete, when they try to sprint, they come at it with sort of a base level and it's not whether they've trained sprinting or not. Some people are just better sprinters than other people. More fast twitch fibers, fewer slow twitch fibers, I'm assuming. I think that sitting at this table here, Trevor and I, is a, a N equals two study. Uh, you know, we're we're both similar in, in a lot in a lot of ways, similar in strength in a lot of ways. You know, we can we can contend in the same races. And yet Trevor, I think it's safe to say that you're a terrible sprinter. <laughs> I apologize if you think that's mean. I like to say that in a straight-up sprint against a kid on a tricycle, I call it a pretty even bet. <laughs> and I, on the other hand, have never really trained sprinting much in my life, and yet the races that I won were almost always in a sprint. Uh, yeah, I was never sort of a big, big bunch sprinter, but you know, last sprinter standing is the way that that I think I think Trevor actually you described me as that one time. And again, this is not something that either of us have really trained and yet we start with these very very different 
base levels of competency, so to speak. Trevor, you've done some research into this. Why is that the case? Why do people show up at a bike race and some are just straight up better sprinters than others? So first, let's differentiate. There, There's probably three aspects of the sprint finish, and we're going to address all of them. Right now, when we're talking about the genetic side, we're talking about what sort of power can you put out? So I'll get to that question uh, in a second. But even if you can put out that big power, it doesn't mean you're going to win a sprint because we also have to deal with all the field dynamics. And there's also a bit of an attitude call it a fearlessness side of sprinting. You have to be willing at high speeds to be bumping shoulders with a lot of big people who want to eat you for lunch and and somehow get past them for the finish line. And you have to have all of these different aspects. And we're going to talk about all these different aspects. So if you are like me, more than anything in cycling, sprinting is genetic. You either have it or you don't, and you don't have it that sucks, but there are still things you can do to finish well in a sprint finish. But but let's start there. Let's start with the uh, let's start with why physiological you don't have it, size. <laughs> there are a lot of factors that contribute to the sort of power you can put out in a sprint, and really, just the biggest one is your fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fiber ratio. And your sprinters are going to have more of those big fast twitch muscles that can put out a lot of power. Versus somebody like me, if there was a fast twitch muscle fiber in my leg, it would be feeling really lonely and looking for companionship. That being said, we're still talking about cycling. So your sprinters aren't going to be pure fast twitch muscle. They're not going to have pure fast twitch muscle fiber. They're, they wouldn't get to a finish of a race. They're still going to be predominantly slow twitch. They just have more fast twitch than than other riders, uh, more of a time trial style, style rider like me. One of my favorite quotes was from uh, Cancellara. I had a chance to talk with him about this, and he said, "Yeah, I think uh, I think that sprinters have a big muscle." People like me have little muscle. <laughs> this is coming from a guy whose quads actually have enveloped his knee, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how accurate that is. <laughs> I think there was something lost in the translation Maybe there, lost in, in the bit of Fabianese there. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to have those fast twitch muscle fibers. You have to have that that power in your legs. Your extreme. You look at your pure track sprinters, they are all fast twitch, and they have those huge legs where if you put uh, even a tour sprinter next to one of those guys, those guys dwarf the tour sprinter, and you can see the track riders putting out 26, 2700 watts. You know, I knew one of those guys, and I loved to look at his bike because he couldn't ride a normal chain. He had to have something that looked like a cross between a motorcycle chain and a, a road bike chain because he would snap a normal road bike chain. So, so there, there are other there are other factors in max power that are trainable, Trevor. So yes, ultimately to put out big power, you need to have the the right muscle fiber composition. But there are other factors that contribute to max power that are trainable. So you can improve your wattage, but if right now you're putting out a thousand watts, you're not going to be able to put out 2000 watts. You might be able to get it up to 11, 12, maybe even 1300. There, there's going to be a range. Some of the other factors are cadence, 
your fatigue at the end of the race and position on the bike. So let's, one of the really interesting ones is, is let's look at cadence. And, and well, Trevor, we previously discussed power and how power is, is largely, well, not largely, it is, it is a function of cadence. Cadence is included in the calculation of power. So that would suggest to me that to produce more power, you can also just up cadence without actually increasing force. Uh, I'm going to guess that that's the direction you're going with this. Right. So there's two ways of increasing your wattage. One is to, with strength, so you maintain your cadence and you just push harder on the pedals. The other way is to increase your cadence. Uh, Both are going to raise your power. And one very interesting study looked at, they were using track cyclists and looked at what cadences they put out the highest wattage. And what they were seeing was the the optimal range for peak wattage was around 120 to 130 RPM. And that it can actually, so peak wattage can vary up to 20%. So if you're down at 60 RPM and you're really high RPM, uh, your power is going to drop significantly. Interestingly, what they found with track riders is they still sprinted upwards around 155, 160 RPM, even though they couldn't put out as high a wattage. And uh, I think the, the reasoning for that is they were sacrificing a little bit of peak power for a little better acceleration because they would use a smaller gear that they could turn up speed much quicker. I can't imagine spinning my legs at 160 RPM and actually putting any power power into the pedals. I mean, that's the other side of this discussion is we could say it's easy enough to say, okay, just increase your cadence and you'll increase your power. But the, the reality is you have to maintain force while increasing cadence to actually increase power. That's the way that the calculation works. And that is it's easier said than done. But like you said, totally trainable. That is one thing that we can definitely train. You can... Uh, was it, would that come back to sort of neuromuscular training, I would suppose? Right. And actually, you, you just went right where I was hoping to go with this because there was another very interesting study. This was done in 2012 by a, a Dr. Doral out of France where they looked at muscle activation patterns in a sprint. And they looked at how your activation patterns change as you put out bigger and bigger wattage. And it wasn't always what you expected. Like, for example, one of the things they discovered is you don't really increase the amount of of force you're putting out with your quads. And you actually also don't maximally use your quads. This gets really complicated, so I'm going to try to simplify this, and I apologize ahead of time if I get it slightly wrong. But I want to get the key message across here is what they saw when these high-level cyclists were sprinting was there was a lot more activation in the hip flexors and the hip extensors and the knee extensors or sorry knee flexors so basically you were using more of your hamstring you were using more of your glutes you were using more of well what we just call your hip flexors they actually saw very little use of of plantar extensors so basically your ankle wasn't that important in the sprint what all this means is as you were getting up towards max power, you weren't necessarily putting out more force with the same muscles. You were recruiting more muscles. And what they saw was you were generating power through more of the pedal stroke. 
So this goes back to those track sprinters. Like track sprinters often sprint seated, right, and still put out all that power, which I find kind of insane. They, you know, they'll stand up right at the beginning of the of the of the sprint and then sit down almost immediately. But they can do that because they are recruiting these additional muscle groups very effectively. Right. And amazingly, so in, I think it was this study or, or maybe one of the ones I'm about to talk about, they were seeing track sprinters still able to put out 17, 1800 watts seated. I can't even, this is sort of beyond the realm of comprehension, <laughs> honestly. But you, you touched on the really important thing. As soon as you are talking about talking about you need to do higher cadence you need to pedal through more of the pedal stroke you need to recruit more muscles all this goes back to our conversation about neuromuscular recruitment so you want to be a better sprinter spend a lot of time doing that neuromuscular work which we had that great conversation with grant holicky about neuromuscular training and so we've made fun of me for not being a good sprinter i'm going to make a little more fun of myself a couple of years ago, VeloNews asked me to test a uh, the what's called the Watt bike, which actually shows your pedal stroke, and you can work on the smoothness of your pedal stroke with this little graphical display, like a CompuTrainer spin scan thing. It's basically, yeah. CompuTrainer spin scan thing. I remember getting this thing out of the box, and I was like, you know, I've been, I've been, I think I told this story before, but I'll tell it again. You know, I just felt I've been racing for years. I'm going to crush this. I'm going to have the the best spin scan you've ever seen. And I got on this this bike and and started pedaling really hard and did a couple threshold intervals and I was carving this nice figure eight. And then I looked at the instruction manual to see what it meant and it said figure eight shape, beginner cyclist. And so even though I will say I'm genetically not designed to be a sprinter, I also, that indicated I don't have the best pedal stroke, best neuromuscular recruitment patterns. That might also be contributing to my poor sprint. Two years ago, I did a phone interview with Eric Young, who's a two-time national criterium champion and now rides with Rally Pro Cycling. Eric gave me some of the best advice I've ever heard about sprinting in this interview. And what's your feeling about sprinting? Is it something that you can really train or is it something that's genetic? You either have it or you don't. How do you feel? I would say uh, the physical aspect of it is um, is is a lot, very genetic. But determining like how you actually do in a race, like there are a lot more factors than just how good of a sprinter you are running in a straight line. So like just how many raw blocks you can put out. So I think that aspect of it is, is very genetic. And, of course, like, it is very malleable. I mean, I've improved a lot during training and stuff. But then again, you know, there are guys that no matter if I train it or not, I'm going to be way faster than them. So, But the aspect that I think you can work out a lot is how you ride the, you know, the last 3 or 4K of a race. And, you know, how you just manage yourself in the sprint, your mentality, your strategy, like how just where, what wheels you're following, how you're doing it. So I think that's where, you know, the, the biggest improvement can be made. And, and that's also not uh, really dependent on your genetics. Anyone can improve in that, even if they're not really that fast. They can still, if you're in the right position at the right time, you can still do pretty well, even if you're not all that fast. So, yeah, I would say it's kind of, kind of both, honestly, but. 
what would be your recommendations to riders, um, especially to people who don't have that natural huge wattage to, to rely on? What what sort of preparation can they do to help them perform better when they finally get to the race? Well, one thing that I, I do in the off-season is a fair bit of gym work, and that that's just not like super serious stuff, but uh, I find that, you know, especially non-sprinters, you know, they can go 10 years without ever getting in a gym, and all they do is ride. And so you're extremely adapted to riding at 200 watts, right. but Sprinting at 1,500 or 1,000 plus, whatever, you know, your max wattage is, sprinting at that is a very different demand on your body. And in my mind, I mean, I think it makes sense to adapt to that ahead of time and get your body ready to accept a way heavier load. So for me, I do, a, I mean, I do a variety of gym exercises and there's a, you know, a million training plans out there, but really you can just stick to like the basic squat, lunges. And, you know, work up a little bit of weight and then, you know, do a lot of different stuff, do some fun metrics. Like, there's a million ways to do it, but I think any of that will help in the long run. And, and since you're doing it in the off-season, it doesn't really take away from from your specific training, like, in, in the season. So, I really don't think there's there's too much of a negative to that. You know, I think sprinting is, is, is a part of cycling that demands kind of an overall fitness of your body, like, Sprinters look a little bit more like normal people than cyclists, most cyclists do, like the climber guys, because you do have to use your whole body. And so I think that makes sense to train your whole body then and not just not just on the bike. So that's that's always my first piece of advice. I mean, I guess for most people, most non-sprinters, it would be, um, you know, obviously they want to get, like, faster and stronger or whatever, but maybe, maybe on average um, their weakness would be uh, their leg speed and their cadence when they're sprinting. I know my teammates and I have done like a training camp and stuff. We've done, you know, kind of sprints where everybody does the same thing and just looking at like, obviously, you know, maybe my power is higher than everyone else's, but my cadence was also like 20 to 30 RPMs faster just across the board sprinting. And that's, you know, they, a lot of them didn't realize that. They were sprinting at, you know, 100 or 110 RPMs, whereas I was sprinting at, like, 130. You know, and that's a big big difference. It allows you to accelerate a lot faster. And that's something, too, that most people could, could try out relatively easy, just being a slightly different gear at the end of the race and, uh, you know, see if that helps you. Um, so you think for people doing a lot of cadence work is going to help them? Is there any good I cadence work? For me, I do uh, I, I do a little bit of fixed gear riding, just uh, like on the road, and hopping on the track as well is awesome. That's that's really good because it just forces you to forces your body to learn how to pedal fast. So that's a really good tool, but you know not not everybody has access to that. It's really simple, you know, little ring sprints. You know, even when you're just in a normal sprint situation on a group ride, just put in the low ring, and then you'll be in the 11 or 12, and uh, just. I mean, you're going to be undergeared and just try to do as best you can. Like, even if you're just sitting, spinning as fast as you can, and you're sitting on the wheel of the guy that's sprinting, you're still learning quite a lot, and your body's adapting to that. Even if you're, you know, too undergeared to, to come around someone, um, that's still a good exercise. So doing stuff like that, downhill sprints are good as well, just because it simulates the higher speed of a race versus yeah. Sprinting from 18 miles an hour on your training. We can really split sprinting into two pretty definitive 
parts, maybe even three, actually. You know, there's the lead up to the sprint. There's the acceleration period, you know, where, where I guess where generally a sprinter would first get out of the saddle or when you're when you're getting up sort of north of 60 kilometers an hour, that, that real acceleration period. And then you have holding onto it because the sprint is generally somewhere in the order of 150 to even 300 yards long, meters long. Let's talk about the difference between the jump and holding it. That's a really important distinction, and that leads to one of the last studies that I'm going to mention. And again, we'll put all the the references up on the, the website for anybody who wants to see these. They took track sprinters again, very high-level track sprinters, and looked at variety of factors over a a 60-second effort. And what you saw is that max power, that big power that these track sprinters can put out was really in the first 12 seconds. That's where they were hitting twelve or 2,000 watts. After that, for the rest of the effort, so we're talking 45-ish seconds, their power dropped right down to the 500-watt range, which even I can generate. What they concluded from this study was that there's two distinct parts to the, the effort. There's the initial acceleration, because they, they were at doing a standing start, where you need that max power. After that, they were saying 74, 74% of what you were fighting or trying to overcome was aerodynamic drag. So really at that point, it became a lot more about getting low and, and reducing that frontal profile so that you had less drag. Um, and it was far less about power. This gets really important because you know on the track, you have to get yourself up to speed. You need that big power. In a road race or in a crit, you're already accelerated. So that huge max power isn't that important. And to really make this point, that same study looked at, I believe it was the sprint finish in a race that Cavendish won. And they showed that he maxed out. This, this is a big pro tour race. His max wattage to win this race in the sprint was 1,097 watts. Which is not very many watts. Not very, I can do that. <laughs> Even Trevor can do that. <laughs> Even I can do that. However, where it gets more impressive is they showed that in the three minutes leading up to the sprint, he averaged 490 watts. Right. And that we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that lead up and positioning in a minute. But the, the major point here is, yeah, you, the way that you translate that track study into road racing is by looking at, you basically consider that acceleration is mostly going to happen behind teammates or, or within the field. And then once a sprinter f- hits the wind, then yes, they're going to they're gonna put out their, their full blast of power. But that may not actually be that much. And because there's a lead out, the speed is already really, really high. In, in the world tour, these guys are sprinting at 70 plus kilometers an hour sometimes, depending on the finish. You know, in, in an average amateur race, you're definitely going to be sprinting over 30 miles an hour, so well over 50 kilometers an hour. Aerodynamics at that point is the number one priority, basically. And this is why when we look at, at top sprinters like Mark Cavendish, Caleb Ewan, there is an increasing trend toward very, very low, very, very aerodynamic sprinting positions because there's essentially two ways to skin this cat right there's the marcel kittle way the andre greipel way where you just put out big 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 power and 
overcome the air resistance of being a big guy high up on a bike. Or you do the Cavendish Caleb Ewan way, where you basically put your face on the handlebars and probably produce three, four hundred watts less than those big guys, but you can still beat them sometimes. Right. And this is why when an athlete that I'm coaching asks me about sprinting or sprinting form, I, one of the things I tell them is eat your handlebars. Mm-hmm. If, if And you watch it on film. It looks like Cavendish is, every time he's going back and forth, it almost looks like he's putting his mouth on his handlebars. He's so far down. Yeah. And that's definitely, you know, what helps those guys with that position is the fact that they're like five foot five. <laughs> if you're not five foot five, you're going to kind of struggle to, to do that. But there are definitely things that you can do in terms of positioning to make you much more aerodynamic, you know, keep the head tucked in, keep the shoulders tucked in, concentrate on not bouncing up and down so much. You know, when you watch amateur sprints, they often do this sort of like, like chicken head cluck, uh, bounce up and down thing. That is not an efficient way to be sprinting. So there's definitely that stuff just takes practice. You just need to go out and practice keeping your head down while putting out as much power as possible. So, I think we've really covered everything about ways you can improve your power, improve the, the just the the brute force of your sprint. And I think the message here is work on the neuromuscular side. Really, really work on that side of your training. Which leads us into this question of power versus positioning. And Trevor, I know that you you dug up a study which I've actually seen referenced before. I think we, I think we at some point we did a story on it. But anyway, you 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 dug up this study that looked at where a sprinter had to be in the final couple kilometers in order to win a race, and it was pretty consistent. It was actually more so than peak power. Positioning was a better indicator of final result than peak power was. Right start by saying I love these types of studies because they have to let their subject remain anonymous <laughs> but then they say things like well this rider had their took the green jersey at the Tour de France twice between 2008 and 2011 won <laughs> x number of races they mentioned some of the races and at the end of all this you go why not just use the name <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Mark Cavendish to me <laughs> sounds a lot like Mark Cavendish so Yes, this was a study where they quite literally took footage of every single sprint finish that Mark Cavendish was in from 2008 to 2011. And first of all, you look at his his stats, they're unbelievable. Uh, Of the Grand Tour stages that finished with a sprint, he won 58%, lost 29%, and was simply dropped in 12%. So from 2008 to 2011, if you were coming to a sprint and and Cavendish was there, you were generally racing for second place. What was fascinating about this study, they quite literally sat there and watched the last couple minutes and they marked where was Mark Cavendish at a minute from the finish? Where was he five minutes from the finish? And they looked at all these different trends to see if there's any correlations with how frequently he won or lost. And some of the things they found were at a minute from the finish, in order for Cavendish to win the race, he had to be positioned either second through eighth, and he needed to have at least one teammate with him. So at a minute from the finish, if he was ninth or worst worst place, he didn't win. If he was on his own, 
he didn't win. Another big trend they saw is generally to win, he needed to still have a teammate left with him at 15 seconds from the finish. Lead out guy. Yeah. Lead out guy. What the study really concluded was that positioning coming into the finish was as important, if not more important, than that, that final sprint in the last 15 seconds. Which brings us back to the fact that you do not necessarily need to be the most gifted in terms of peak power to have a pretty good sprint. I mean, it, it sounds to me like if you put yourself in the right place, then you've set yourself up for success, so to speak, right? right. I mean, you don't have to be Cavendish to be fourth wheel at 30 seconds to go in the race. You're just not going to uh, you're not going to gain or lose that many places at that point. Exactly, and as a matter of fact, we had a chance to talk with a sprinter who could kill both Kaylee and myself. Um, I almost beat him at the oval crit one time. Was he in the race? He was in the race. Okay, I was like, uh, I shouldn't say almost beat him. I was about half a bike length, <laughs> <laughs> and I did beat him. <laughs> That's all right. Well, I'm impressed. Uh, I can't think of a good joke, for I'm going to just cut my comment there. Eric had a lot to say about this, especially about how important the, the positioning is relative to the sprint itself. So let's hear from him. Um, no, I think, I think the position that you are in, which obviously it's different, you know, the best position to be in it is different in every single race, which is part of what makes sprinting so difficult the master but i would say that honestly above everything else because in especially in certain certain races if you put yourself in the right spot no matter how fast somebody is if they're two wheels off you they, they just won't have time to pass you if you can put yourself in the best position possible that is going to be the, the best thing for you to do for sprinting and then i would say second to that is how fast you actually are so I guess that begs the question, how did you learn positioning? What would what would be your suggestions to them to, to work on their positioning? Practice, and it takes willing a willingness to try things that you're not initially comfortable with. So, you know, the only way you're going to know if you can win a sprint by leading it out at 300 meters is by trying that. And then uh, if it works and you jump super hard and you gap everybody and hold it to the line, then you know, then you've kind of acquired this new skill where, okay, now I know like what that feels like, what that looks like, you know, with where I need to be at one kilometer to go and at two kilometers to go and at 500 meters to go if I want to do this at 200 meters to go, you know, whatever, whatever it is you want to do. It, it takes a willingness to, to constantly change your strategies initially because if you just keep trying the same thing, you're not going to learn much. But also, it, it takes um, that willingness to, uh, yeah, to risk new things and then to kind of learn from it and, you know, kind of analyze after the race. Like, this is how this course of events followed from this. And being in this position at one kilometer to go led to me being here at 300 meters to go. And then that's why I was able to win the race forever. Are yeah. there any general rules that you find you always follow in the sprint finish or is it really a, a feel thing where every race is completely different? One rule of thumb for me is that um, I've lost a lot more races by being too conservative and not being willing to, you know, go too early and lose rather than, you know, trying to stay that until the very perfect moment. And then if that moment never appears, then you're kind of screwed. 
So I've lost a lot of races that way. And so my my rule of thumb that I've tried to adopt, and it's, it's difficult to do, um, but is to uh, when and now lead it out. I mean, just like don't don't wait too long. Make sure you do something. Make sure you try your plan. The most frustrating way to lose is to be sitting there as you cross the finish line with gas in the tank and you didn't actually do anything. Whereas you go too early and somebody passes you and you get second, it's, uh, it feels like a lot better than than uh, not ever putting yourself out there and trying. So that's my that's my rule of thumb, especially for new newer you know less experienced riders that because you don't know really what your limits are. So don't be afraid to fail and go too early. You don't know if it's too early, really. I and mean, the only way you're going to figure that out is, is by messing it up and losing and figuring that out. So, A lot of people, when they think about the sprint, they think about the, the last 200 meters. Uh, right. How critical is that four or five minutes before the that final 200 meters? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that it, it, it's almost 99% of the, of the whole sprint. <laughs> For me, um, I mean, I've always been naturally fast as a sprinter, so I've kind of, the last 200 meters, like, that box has always been checked for me, personally. And it's it's the getting to that point in the right position with uh, enough freshness in my legs to be able to sprint. That is, like, 100% of the challenge for me. So, yeah, I think a lot of people focus on the actual sprint, and, but, you know, you're only going to, change say you go into go into a sprint third wheel guy that is eighth wheel probably is never going to pass you even if he is faster than you you know so you're only going to change one or two or three wheels you're only going to pass a few guys in the final sprint so you have to be able to put yourself um in a place where you know you're able to pass everybody in front of you did you have any other thoughts or or wisdoms for sprinting or, or the sprint finish I think it just depends on the type of rider you are. So, I mean, I've, I've won races where I can, I can go pretty far out and continue accelerating all the way to the line and so I'm able to hold people off. But, of course, for California next week, like, that's probably not the best strategy because Cavendish and Killer are there. Like, they're going to be able to come around you, you know. So, right. um, it depends totally uh, on the race and the, the other racers that are in the field. Think critically about, you know, every race before – before you uh, are actually in the race, come up with you know a loose plan and then be flexible with it. Don't give up. Can't relate who I heard this from, but you know if you're a climber and and you're trying to win a mountaintop finish, you can make a few mistakes in there. You know if you don't accelerate at exactly the right second, or you know you're one wheel off the right guy or whatever. Like there's a little bit more room for error because the effort and the, that critical moment is drawn out so far, right? So long. Yep. Whereas taking a sprint, like a lot of times, if you make one mistake in the last five minutes of the race, you're done. So you know that's equally the most frustrating aspect, but it's also kind of cool. Like you have to be perfect, and it's incredibly rewarding when it does work because, and you can look back on the end of that race and just be like, I did everything exactly right that I could have done, and uh, you know it doesn't happen all the time, and which gets to be extremely frustrating, but when it does, it's totally rewarding and it's awesome. And one of the more, I don't know, unique aspects of, of racing, I think. Fact of the matter is, and, and again, Eric said this, even somebody like me, who's an awful sprinter, 
if I can hit that last 200 meters top 10, I can finish top 10. I might not win the race. A better sprinter is going to beat me. But even with my horrible sprint, I'm only going to lose two, maybe three spots. So it's about getting there. It's about being there at that finish. That's very relevant for our listeners out there seeking things like upgrade points, which go quite a bit deeper than you might think. Yeah, put yourself put yourself on the very front of the bike race at 400 meters to go, and the worst you're going to do is eighth. That that's enough to uh, that's enough to score yourself a couple points. Right, which also means because I see this a lot in races, don't quit. I see so many riders get to that sprint finish in seventh or eighth wheel and they just sit up. Keep going. Keep, Keep your going. head down. You might not win, but you can still get a top five or even potentially a podium. So obviously positioning is really important. It's uh, it's also easier said than done. You know, Having a really good team definitely helps, but I think a lot of listeners out there are going to be either racing unattached or with small teams or with teams that aren't particularly well-organized. The end result being that you're you're often going to have to kind of fend you for yourself at the end of a bike race. How do you train to put in that effort that is required at the end of a race to keep you in position? I mean, because you were talking about the, the CAV study earlier that looked at those last couple of minutes and, and him putting out, what was it, something 490 watts for five minutes or something like that for the, for the end of these races? I mean, that's for, for CAV, definitely, but really for almost anybody. That's a VO2 effort. That's well over threshold for five minutes before before you're going to try to lay down a race-winning sprint. So how do people train to do that sort of effort that is required to keep you in position? I think Eric said it really well that, I can't remember his exact wording, but basically he said that that final sprint is the icing on the cake, that really most of the sprint happens before you you put down that big wattage. So... If you think I want to be a sprinter, so all I'm going to do is go out and do sprint intervals, you might have that big power, but you're right. You're never going to be at that finish to be able to use it. So sprinters need to put a lot of work into that VO2 max range so that they can be putting out above threshold power for five, even 10 minutes and stay at the front and, and get and be there for the sprint finish doesn't matter how big a power you can put out if you're not there at the end because you got dropped in the in the run into the finish. And that sort of work is more we've talked about this before the the Tabata style intervals to doing 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off or a whole series of 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off where you're putting out a big above threshold effort but then give yourself a very short recovery and you keep repeating that so you're training your body in an oxygen-starved, unrecovered state to keep generating big wattage. Sounds really unpleasant. <laughs> People always say that being a sprinter is like the easiest job in cycling. You just show up and sprint at the end, right? You're, like, you don't have to, you're not a climber. You don't have to like sit at threshold for hours and hours on end. But no, it can be, it can be pretty painful in the last couple of minutes of a, of a race. That's for sure. Oh, that run-in is the hard part. So let's say you have that big VO2 max power to, to really be able to fight or, or be at the front for that, those last couple kilometers. And let's say you have that big power for the sprint. We still haven't covered everything you need to still do well in the sprint. There, there is the positioning side of it, and there is the confidence side of it. This, the sprint finish is 
one of the the roughest parts of bike racing. It can be one of the scariest parts of bike racing because you, especially if you're in a, a, a pack sprint, you are shoulder to shoulder with a lot of guys or women who are ready to eat their own mother to get that win. I realized I wasn't a sprinter the day. So I had a chance to, I think it was Gord Frazier I spoke to, who is the winningest cyclist in, in U.S. history. He won more crits than, than any other rider ever has, I believe. Um, I asked him what it took to win a sprint and got an answer that told me, even if I could generate 2,000 watts, I will never be a sprinter. He said, when I get to that final corner, I have to take it in a way that there's a 50% chance I'll win the race and a 50% chance I will end up in the hospital and not care which it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say from personal experience, uh, because around this table, I'm, I'm a bit more of a sprinter than Trevor. I will not pretend to be anything like Gord Frazier, but definitely won a few sprints in my day. There, my brain would just turn off in the last lap. That's the way that, like, it was, it was I, would, I would categorize it as a fight or flight response i think you know you get a surge of adrenaline and yeah basically my brain would just turn off and you just do you you stop thinking about what you're doing you just start doing it i like i would love to be able to describe better what the last lap of a of a crit was like but i honestly couldn't tell you most of the time (laughs) because yeah like i said the the brain just kind of turns off and you do what needs to get done and you open it up and your brain kind of turns back on after you cross the finish line. And I think if you, if you're scared of that, then being a sprinter is probably not for you. And if you're, if you're unable to sort of do the, turn your brain off and just do it, then being a sprinter is probably not for you. Fast talk is sponsored by Quark, maker of next generation power meters and other kick-ass bicycle data systems. Their Calvin app is the digital wrench for Quark's power meter technology. Calvin uses Bluetooth Low Energy or Ant Plus to deliver firmware updates, diagnostics, power meter zeroing, and calibration from your desktop, laptop, or smartphone. Find out more at quark.com. I think the best way I could describe it is when you are 40 miles from the finish and you want to sit 10th wheel in the race, for the most part, you can hold your position. When you are coming into a sprint finish, there is no holding position. It is constantly being fought for, and you just have to be moving up and moving up and watching for getting boxed in, watching for riders coming around you, and just every time you see a hole, you go and fill it. Every chance you have to move up two riders, you take it, or you are very quickly going to find yourself 40th wheel and out of the sprint. Yeah, basically, if you're not moving up, you're moving back. There's there like you said there's no holding a spot in the last couple laps of a of a crit or something like that. It, it, if you're not actively moving up, you are moving backward, and so actively move up constantly. <laughs> Every single hole that you see up the side, whatever. I mean that that's where it's helpful to have a really good teammate who understands that. You do have to be careful because sometimes if someone offers you a lead out and they don't know what they're doing, then if they end up losing position, then you also lose position. But for the most part, it's good to have somebody who's willing to burn matches a bit early take you up the side of the field, particularly in an amateur event where that, that really works a lot better, uh, and then put you, sort of drop you off in a position right when you need to be. 
So what are some of those tactics for the, and I'm asking you, Kelly, because I'm not sure I've ever seen the last two kilometers of a race. <laughs> what are some of the right. tactics when you're up there? And what are some of the tactics when you are solo versus you have a few teammates? Hmm. Solo is tricky. I mean, a solo, well, a solo, solo can actually be better sometimes. It depends on the, on the finish. I mean, solo, I would just generally find find the nearest good sprinter and follow them around or or find someone with a with a team and follow them around you know when when you start getting into the higher echelons of bike racing there, sometimes there's something called a sweeper which is someone a teammate of a sprinter who actually sits on the sprinter's wheel and just protects it if you can if you can elbow that guy or lady out of the way uh, and and steal the sprinter's wheel that's pretty ideal if you have a team this goes back to everyone on your team should have a role, not not a plan. You know, you don't want to tell people, okay, listen, Jimmy, you're going to pull from 1.5K to 1K, and Bob here is going to pull from 1K to 500, and Steve is going to go from 500 to 250, and then I'm going to take over. That's, that's never, ever, ever, ever going to happen. But if you put people in the right order and they know what order they're, su- they're supposed to be in and they just go as hard as they possibly can until they can't go anymore, and then you hope that the timing is right, right? Yeah. The one thing you can do is say, all right, if we, have, if we have three of us up here and with three of us, we know we don't want to hit the front until one and a half K to go. If we have five of us up here, we can hit it a bit earlier, right? That's the only sort of plan you can really make. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, just just... Make sure everybody has a role. Make sure they know who the last guy is uh, and make sure that they understand that they are not actually sprinting for the finish line, that their finish line is earlier. And this comes back to amateur racing. We're, we're not always the best at sticking sticking to our roles because you know everybody wants to win, right? I think this is a classic. <laughs> this is a pretty classic thing where the last man on the lead out is like, oh, I could see the finish line. I'm just going to go for it, right? That that doesn't work because that means that they're going to hold back a little bit and not pull the actual sprinter up to where they're supposed to be. Yeah, your your finish line is 20 seconds before the finish. Exactly. Yeah. And I would say in your lead out train, the order should generally be worst sprinter to best sprinter. Yep. So I was always the first one in the lead out train because I was always the worst sprinter. <laughs> so my job was to sit on the front and get the pace really high to discourage anybody from breaking away. And that would also allow all my teammates to get in behind me and get into position. So I would take well, well before you'd ever see the finish, I would take a a five, six, seven minute pull at a very high pace. And I would probably be off two minutes before the finish or a minute before the finish. And then mm-hmm. each rider after me would take a faster and, and shorter pull until the final lead out guy was, was practically doing a sprint. Yeah. I mean, the last, the last lead out man is sprinting. They're, they're, they just, their, their finish line is just a little bit early. <laughs> that is a full on sprint. And, you know, theoretically the, the sprinter behind them is even faster. So can, can keep up and then can accelerate once again. We caught up with Kiel Reinen who rides for Trek Segafredo and has been an integral part of John Dagenkolb's leadout team for most, much of the season, including at uh, the Tour of Dubai, Tour of California. Uh, we asked him about timing of leadouts because in a leadout, sometimes it all comes down to timing. Get those guys into position, uh, final K, 
you know, the priority is always always position before depth. So it's better to run short and, and get those guys where they need to be than um, wait, 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 and, and be too far back. So ideally, I'm dropping Kuhn off with about 600 meters to go, 700 meters to go. And, you know, if it's not working out right and, and we're too far back, then I got to um, use my energy a little earlier and make sure with the K to go, they're on the right wheels at least. That's interesting because uh, armchair quarterbacks like myself, we look at the television and, and we we more often see teams that look like they go too early. But you're, you're making it sound like that's intentional, that it's better to go too early than to, than to go too late. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you don't want to be first into the wind uh but if you're you know in that final k and you're you're more than 15 wheels back it's already too late so it's it's better to err on the side of caution especially if you're running a short train you know when a team's got gc interests and and sprint interests um they might not have as many lead out guys you know if you're coming to a race uh like quick step is here with with almost you know everyone committed to the lead out train minus one or two guys it's a lot easier to hit the front earlier. So it just, just kind of depends on, on the, the depth of the, the lead-out train. Any tips and tricks for uh, amateur bike racers out there trying to put a, put a lead-out train together in the Cat 3 field? Uh, decide what side you're going on before the race starts. That's a good one, actually. Depending on what, wind and probably the way that the, the finish is? Yeah, it depends on those those final few turns and, and the wind, and mostly just so that everyone's on the same page. You know, you don't want to be... Sometimes you got to change the plan on the fly, but uh, it's better if you if you don't. So sprinting isn't always out of a big bunch, right? I mean, it's not always going to be a big peloton that comes into the finish. And I will say that uh, I think I mentioned this earlier that you know those were always my favorite sprints when it was down to instead of being eighty guys, it was down to twenty. Then then I was a lot more confident that I was one of the one of the fastest guys in the group. But it can be even smaller than that. If, you, if you're the type of rider like Trevor and you need to go for a breakaway in order to win a race, you still need to be able to sprint out of a break occasionally. There's, you know, the chances of you coming in solo are a lot less than you coming in with three to four other riders. So let's talk a little bit about the things you can do coming into a finish to make sure you win out of a group of three or four riders. And this could be, honestly, we could do, we could talk about this for ages and all the different sort of scenarios that you could go through but there are a couple just good tips that you can follow pretty much every time yeah this is really more you yeah. than me so <laughs> you can ask me about the what do you do yeah. if you're you know you're going to be fourth out of a group of four <laughs> so the first thing you have to do is is take stock of your own sprint abilities versus the group that you're in and then that you know that comes down to knowing your competitors which you will sometimes and you won't sometimes sometimes you just have to guess be very very careful assuming that a bigger rider is a better sprinter that is not that is not always the case anyway take stock of the riders around you figure out am i the second fastest am i the first fastest am i the am i the fourth fastest out of this group of four and from there you can start to kind of make your your plan if you are the slowest guy in the breakaway it's worth giving it a shot a bit early going for the sneak attack sitting at the back four or 500 meters out, wait for a lull in the pace or for someone else to pull off and just, just go for it. And you sprint those first hundred meters, like you're sprinting for a finish line and then just try to hang on for dear life. Because if, if, if you're not a super strong sprinter, you still need to get that gap against guys that are probably 
able to jump a little bit harder than you, the only chance you have is to is to give it absolutely everything way earlier than they want to and hope that they just that they have a split second of indecision and don't jump on your wheel and then hopefully you can motor into the finish line. If you're the fastest guy in the group, well, you can kind of do anything. <laughs> the one thing you don't want to do is lead out. Yeah, so if you're in a breakaway and you're the worst sprinter, Trevor, you have some personal experience in this matter. Oh, we are in my <laughs> wheelhouse now. <laughs> what do you do? So if you're like me and pretty much you want to win a race, you have to cross the finish line solo, which means I don't win a lot of races. I do well in a lot of races. I don't win very many races. There's a few things you can do. Kaylee really touched on one, which is you have to size up all the people in the breakaway with you. And you have to figure out who are the sprinters. Then it's pretty much you got to get rid of them before you get to the finish. And I will tell you, if you're five, ten minutes away from the finish and you haven't gotten rid of them, race is over. I see too many people try to make that last minute attack to try to do something. No, it, it has to happen much, much sooner. Don't wait for the last five minutes. The race is already over. Yeah, a good thing to keep in mind is that if you're the worst sprinter in the group, you might also be the best time trialist, right? right? Because our physiology kind of dictates that, that assuming that, you know, that there isn't just some superstar rider in that group, you know, the Peter Sagan, generally, if you have less sprint power, you're going to have more aerobic power. That's Use that to your advantage. That's where I was always at. So I always tried to turn the breakaway into, let's not try to be super conservative here. I'm going to waste a ton of energy. I'm going to force all them to waste a ton of energy. And my guess is they'll crack before I do. I would find you so irritating in a breakaway, Trevor. Yeah, you wouldn't like me at all. (laughs) My thing was always do as little as possible. Possible. Which I wouldn't let you do. I would make you work and you would hate me. Yes, I would be yelling things. Ultimately, if you are the worst sprinter and you're in a breakaway of six or seven and your chances of dropping all of them are slim, the best thing to do is is basically put some change in your pocket, meaning identify somebody in there who has a decent chance of winning who you can help out. Look for somebody that you race a lot, especially if they're on a local team that you want to be friends with maybe some of the time. I often go up to that sort of rider and go, you need a hand, you need a lead out, I will help you out. So I will sacrifice that race. But knowing that since I helped them get on the podium or win the race, there's going to be a race down the road where they might be able to help me. It could be as simple as it's a long race. I don't have a feeder there. Their team has a feeder. Hey, can you toss me a water bottle? And they're going to be much more amenable to helping you out. You know, I think actually what, what more so than, than any sort of hard and fast tips here, because there are just so many scenarios that you could go through and each one is going to be different. Maybe the best thing, and maybe this is what we can, we can really recommend, is go back and watch finishes of classics races when it's down to four or five or six riders. So, for example, we have, we have two sort of slightly different finishes uh, on the same weekend, the very beginning of this season. So Omloop at Newsblad, which was won by Greg Van Avermaet over Peter Sagan and Seth Venmark. And then the very next day, Kern Brussel Kern, Peter Sagan, who won over a group of five in the finale. Those are two very, very different finishes. Go and watch finishes like that. Figure out in that group, what kind of rider am I? 
Am I Sagan? Am I Sep? Am I Sep with a slightly worse sprint? Am I Sagan with the best sprint? Am I Greg Van Avermaet with the sprint that's right in the middle? And look at how those riders played the finish and how whether they were successful or not. So I think Omloop is a perfect example of Greg Van Avermaet versus Peter Sagan. Generally, Sagan's going to win that sprint. But Greg Van Avermaet timed it perfectly. He knew the finish. Sagan kind of took a weird line around that last corner. And it, and the result was that Sagan never even came close to him. That's the kind of thing that you can really learn from watching pro racing. Yeah, I think the point here is that more than any other side of racing, the, the sprint is highly, highly strategic. And there are thousands and thousands of ways it can play out. As a matter of fact, pretty much every sprint finish is going to be different. So we can't give you a, here's how to win a sprint finish. You just have to look at the scenarios. Be uh, smart. <laughs> I think it's be smart, learn how to read the field, work on that neuromuscular side to get your, your power up, find that confidence to fight for position. And then beyond that, it's whatever this, however the scenario plays out, it's going to be different and you're just going to have to make quick decisions and, and hope they're all right. Trust your instincts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you've maxed out your your genetic potential in terms of that peak power, then you can really start thinking about, okay, how do I build my VO2 so that I'm a little bit fresher in the last 20 seconds? You can start thinking about how do I position myself up near the front with the least possible effort because that gets you a little bit fresher in the last 30 seconds. A lot of this comes down to just being you know, who has the best legs at the very, very end of a, of a long, hard day. And a lot of that comes down to just being really efficient. So, I think if I could give any advice on the sprint, it's the basically the one thing not to do, which is to not make a decision. When you're in that sprint finish, you're going to have to make 40 decisions in, in five minutes. And if you hesitate, if you question and, and don't make a quick decision, I almost guarantee you, you're going to shoot back 10, 20 places and you're going to be out of contention. You aren't, you aren't always going to make the right decision and you have to experiment a lot, but I guarantee you, if you make no decision, you're out of contention. Yeah. The answer should pretty much always be yes. <laughs> should I go to the gap? Yes. Should I follow this guy? Yes. <laughs> if you think of it, it's a yes, just do it. And like I said, my, my brain would turn off at the end of these races. Uh, and so honestly, I can't even, I can hardly even tell you what sort of decisions are made, but I'm sure that there were many decisions made and almost always, yes, that's that fight or flight kind of response. Uh, get yourself amped up, get a bit of adrenaline running and just go for it. Well, dear listeners, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we do love your feedback. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. You can subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And while you're there, be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Also, while you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling and also features myself, as well as editor-in-chief Fred Dreyer and our news editor, Spencer Pallison. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production of Connor Coaching and Velo News, which is owned by Competitor Group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Kaylee Fretz. Thanks for listening. Thanks.